Friends, grace and peace to you in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in college my first year, I was privileged to be a tiny little role in a musical by Stephen Sondheim called Merrily We Roll Along. Now, if you know anything about Stephen Sondheim, you know that all of his musicals are weird. And this one was particularly weird. It was weird in that it ran backwards. By that, I mean the first scene in Merrily We Roll Along takes place in 1976. And then each successive scene works its way back a few years until the very last scene of the musical, which takes place in 1957. And so we get to see how we got here. As the musical begins, we meet Frank. Frank is a wildly successful film producer. And he is gathered in his lavish Hollywood home with all the rich and famous, the movers and shakers of 1970s Hollywood. They're celebrating the release of his latest film, a film that artistically was worth very little, but commercially made a real bank. And so all these people have gathered in Frank's home, and we meet Frank's oldest friend, Mary. Mary is a film critic, and they have been friends for 20 years. But Mary is disappointed with what Frank has become. You see, back in the day, Frank was a brilliant musician, an artist who made amazing work. And now he has just surrendered himself to the glitz and the glamour of Hollywood. And so they get into a fight. And they both get progressively more and more drunk. Frank gets even angrier when he learns that an old, old friend named Charlie, with whom he used to collaborate on brilliant works of art, has just won the Pulitzer Prize for his latest play. And Frank is angry because he's not winning any awards. He's just making money. And then Frank's wife comes in, and she's angry too. Because Frank is making a new movie, and in that new movie there's an ingenue, a beautiful woman, playing the lead role. And he had promised that his wife of many years would play that role, because she's an actress. But as it happens, he's given that role away to a younger woman named Meg. And it turns out he's been sleeping with Meg. And Frank's wife finds out, and this party devolves into a drunken mess of anger and violence. And it ends horribly for everyone. End scene. And then we back up a few years. And then we back up a few more years. And then we back up a few more years. And over and over throughout the play, we move back to discover how it is that we got here. To this terrible place. 
until the end of the musical where we find Frank 20 years before, a young kid, and Charlie, that man he was so angry with at the beginning of the play. They're young kids sitting on the rooftop of their Manhattan apartment, dreaming about all the things they will do together. Their new neighbor, Mary, comes over to visit, and they become fast friends immediately. The world is literally at their feet as they sit on the top of one of the tallest buildings in Manhattan. The sky is the limit, and even that limit is pierced by promise. As they have gathered on the rooftop to watch Sputnik blink its way across the sky. The first dream of moving beyond even the limits of our own sky. And Mary and Charlie and Frank sing a song, and the cast, of course, all comes in and sings with them. And it is this most hopeful, most soaringly beautiful, most uplifting and positive and fabulous song about all the dreams that they have, all the energy they have to make the world a different place, to do good art together, to make amazing dreams come true. And you leave the theater feeling really good that the world is at our feet and the sky is the limit and we can dream and we can hope and we can do anything until it sinks in that we know how this ends. Because the ending was back at the beginning when we saw Frank's life dissolve into nothingness, drunken bitterness and anger, several divorces and no real friends. And it's weird to leave the theater believing you can do anything when knowing that, oh, crap. That's how it happens. I don't know if you noticed this, but our reading for today that was chosen by others, not by us, we don't pick the readings, was arranged in a particular way. We heard a reading from the prophet Isaiah that begins in the 36th and 37th chapters. And it ends... In chapter 2. Now, chapter 2 is amazing. These words have inspired poets and hymn writers and authors and dreamers and activists throughout the centuries with a vision, a soaring dream of a world at peace. A world where they beat their swords into plowshares, turn their tanks into lawnmowers. Where we dream of a world where all the nations stream toward Mount Zion, the, the place where God sits, and they learn from God how to be peaceful and righteous and responsible and 
respectful and careful with how they live in the world. It's an amazing vision where we lay down our sword and shield down by the riverside and they study war no more. Can you imagine? It is a stirring vision of a world finally at peace. Wouldn't that be lovely? Isn't that the world we dream of for ourselves and our children and our children's children? And if we left it at that in Isaiah chapter 2, with our spears turned into pruning hooks, and a dream of peace and justice reigning over all the earth, we could leave today feeling nothing but hopefulness, positivity, dare I say optimism, about what could come. But then we remember where we began in chapters 36 and 37, where the people of God are living in fear. where the conquering army of Assyria is breathing down their necks, where the king of Assyria sends an emissary down to the king of Judah and says, hey, you've seen what happened. It's time to give up. Just quit. You've seen what we've done to all of your neighbors, including your dearest cousins to the north, the kingdom of Israel, crushed by our sword. Just give up. If you give up now, you might do all right. I mean, it won't be great, but it'll be better. Just Even the prophet Isaiah is beginning to wonder if maybe giving up is a possibility. After all, is it worth it to keep believing that God will be with us? In the face of all this fear. Just give up. And for me, it begs the question. <clears throat> if you knew what was coming. If you knew that hard days were ahead. Would you still dare to dream? Would you still be able to hope? This last week, I met with a woman 
who is a mother of two adult children. Her daughter is struggling in her marriage. Their child is really stretching their family to the limits. Her other child still stays at home. He's an adult. But his whole body and mind are overcome by a horrible illness, a mental illness that just makes him incapable of functioning in any way other than anger and unpredictable violence. And I imagined with her, if you knew that that was what was going to happen with your children, would you have dared to dream to bring them to birth. It's an image that Isaiah leans on in this reading, and one that we hear all over the Scriptures. Isaiah raises the specter today of a woman in labor. Now, we just actually heard this last week in the prophet Micah, where we thought about the hopefulness of a woman in labor, that, that, that it's painful and it's difficult and it's hard, but... There is hope. There is new life at the end. But today, Isaiah twists that image painfully in talking about a woman who is in labor. And the labor continues and continues to the point where she no longer has the strength to bring new life. I've known several women, some very, very close to my life, who have labored for many, 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 many hours, over 48 hours, and who have told me that there were times during that period when they wondered if they had the strength to continue. if you knew how hard this would be, would you have done it? Would you have dared to dream? I have known people who have poured their lives into election campaigns and activist campaigns, worked hard to, to make the world a better place and, and have have achieved great things and thought for sure this was going to be it. And then they saw how the sausage gets made. They saw how even the best politicians get corrupted by money and change doesn't happen as quickly as we thought it would. I've known people who have gone deep into student loan debt, believing they were investing in their whole future that they knew exactly what they wanted to be, what they wanted to do. And 10, 20, 30, 40 years later, found themselves in a dead-end career or making tons of money but feeling utterly empty inside. Or people who have 
poured themselves into planning the most amazing weddings, believing that they were marrying the person of their dreams, the one whom they would live with and be with for the rest of their lives, only to discover 10, 15, 30 years later, this is not working. If you knew how this would end up, would you dare to dream? Would you dare to hope? Would you dare to believe? But here's the thing. Isaiah knew. I mean, the person who wrote all of the words we just read knew it all. Knew how things turned out, how scary it became, how for a moment they survived and then more tragedy came. And it was devastating and hurtful and painful and then... They waited upon the Lord, and good things happened. Isaiah knew from the beginning how this would happen, how painful things could be. And yet he still dared to dream. And it seems to me that is the promise that we celebrate every time we stand around that bath and watch as God claims another child into the waters of baptism. It's the gift that we claim as we fumble towards Christmas, as we imagine new life being born in a world where labor seems endless. is that God promises to bring all things to a peaceful, righteous, and hopeful ending. And it may take what seems like forever. And there will be many disappointments along the way. And the labor that we have been given to suffer may some days seem endless. But we are called to keep believing that peace is possible, that hope is real, that there is a goodness and a wholeness at the end of all that we face. That God has not abandoned us yet and will never. And so, yes, there is work to be done as we call ourselves, our neighbors, and our nations to beat their plows, their swords into plowshares, 
to plant instead of to kill. There is work to be done as we do the deep, deep dreaming of a peaceful planet. And there are disappointments along the way. And the end of this story is in God's good and gracious hands. Even our darkest days are never the last word in the story of our lives. For God has promised to be with us and to be with us through it all. And because of that promise, as hard as it can be, it is totally worth it to keep dreaming, keep hoping, keep imagining the world as God has promised it will become. And thanks be to God for that. Amen.